wonderful. Okay, so hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am delighted to be joined once again by Anthony Lowenstein, uh, independent journalist, best-selling author, filmmaker, and co-founder of Declassified Australia. Uh, he's written for The Guardian, New York Times, New York Review of Books, and many others. And he's also written a number of books, including Pills, Powder, and Smoke, Disaster Capitalism, and My Israel Question. And now he's coming to us right now to speak about his brand new book, uh, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, no problem. It's a yeah, pleasure to chat to you. It's great, great to see you producing some some new new stuff. Um so so you you actually lived in in East Jerusalem, right? For like two years, yes. something like that? Four, four years. Four, four years. years. Okay, wow. Yeah. yeah. So is that is that when you like started to think about this book, or is it something that's come since then? I think I mean, the short way to put this is that I started visiting Palestine in 2005. So I went to Israel and Palestine then for the first time. And every three or four years, I visited again to do more reporting, either for stories in media or for books. And so I was visiting Israel, the West Bank, Gaza. And in 2016, I moved there with my partner uh, to East Jerusalem. She was working for Oxfam, the NGO, and I was being a freelance journalist. And we were there for four years. And... I guess I started thinking about how to report on an issue and a conflict. And many people watching this will think, well, I hear about Palestine and media all the time. It's one of the few global conflicts that actually does get covered a lot. I would argue often very badly, as I talk about in the book. But nonetheless, it is in the media a lot, as opposed to the vast bulk of conflicts in the world, including in Africa, for example, which basically get ignored. So... But I was interested in doing something that wasn't just a book about the actual conflict itself. Not that that's not important. There are good journalists doing some on-the-ground reporting what happens day in, day out. But I wanted to say a little bit bigger than that. And I suspect the issue of my work around disaster capitalism, I did a book in 2015 about that and a film a few years later, looking at people who are making money from misery, essentially from war, from conflict, from mining, from aid. And... I guess around that time, there started being stories in the media around Pegasus. Some people will, will remember that. It's basically a spyware tool that Israel developed and uh, produced by a company called NSO Group. Essentially, it's a tool that gets put onto your phone. You have no idea it's on there. It can take everything that's on there, texts, phone, photos. It, it can control your camera and microphone even when the phone is off, I mean, the, the power is insane. So it's essentially going to be used against you. And this tool was starting to be used by many repressive regimes around the world to go after dissidents and human rights activists and journalists, etc. So the idea essentially I was looking at then was how a tool that had been developed by people who had worked with the Israeli intelligence um, occupying Palestinians, surveilling them 24-7, was then using that tool and it was being exported around the world. In other words, the occupation was exported. The longest occupation in modern times, 56 years and counting since 1967. And I mean, many argue that the occupation of sorts started in 1948 when Israel was founded, so 75 years ago this year, actually. So I was looking, I guess, at a, trying to do a book or an idea about how these tools of occupation were essentially exportable. And Pegasus, I guess, was, and there's a big section in the book about Pegasus. Pegasus really is only the tip of the iceberg. 
And as I say in the book, I think a lot of the media has missed the bigger picture there, which we can talk about later if you like. But the bottom line, I was interested in showing and investigating and revealing how Israel's occupation wasn't something that was just happening in Palestine itself. It's actually something that was being massively exported and impacting millions of other people around the world in countless other countries. Mm. Yeah, the Pegasus thing. I remember that when that when that first broke, I was like, "Wow!" It's like all of yeah. it's like all of the tech that you see in things like Homeland or like any of those shows where where it's like inside fictitious or you know fict- fictitious stories inside intelligence agencies. All all the technology that you're watching, thinking, "Oh, it's all right." There's no way they could do that, you know, in the real world. That's just that's just fiction. It's like all of a sudden you you look at it and be like, "Hang on." They, they, they can actually do all these scary futuristic things. Um, mm-hmm. And the scariest part for me is is the the lack of, of pushback, not just like against Israel itself on, on this board, but just of this kind of technology generally. Like it, it feels like maybe 20, 30 years ago, there would have been more of a backlash, especially probably from like members of the media talking about the violations of you know human rights privacy sort of like the implications of of governments and intelligence agencies possessing this kind of sort of unchecked power in us in a sense like what do you think it is that that means that that's not raised as a concern in the same way it might have been i think a lot's changed in those years i mean a few issues and i touch on some of these in the book right that 9-11 happened and on one level, that has nothing to do with this at all. On the other hand, it has a lot to do with it. And what I mean by that is that those attacks obviously were against the US. They were not against Israel, although you could argue that Al-Qaeda was equally opposed to Israel. But the attacks were against the US, but Western interests, I suppose, in the heart of the US empire, Washington and, and New York. But so, and much of the Western world pivoted to a so-called war on terror, where it was seen as acceptable and necessary to reduce privacy. The privacy was almost a luxury that if you want to keep safe and keep those terrorists away, we had to lose some of our privacy. Mm. There's also been, of course, a massive proliferation of social media where these companies, Facebook, Twitter, and others have essentially destroyed privacy by convincing billions of us that we should give away all our information for free and then they can harvest that data to sell ads back to you. That you probably don't want. So on one level, it's an evil genius business model, which has made them huge amounts of money. So that's part of it. And look, there have been obviously journalists that are very much against what's happening now. There's no question that there are. They did some of the good reporting on this issue in the last few years. Some people might remember the so-called Pegasus files, which is basically this massive leak of tens and tens of thousands of numbers of people that allegedly had been surveilled and hacked by Pegasus. And this is people in democracies, dictatorships, journalists, um, you know, Emmanuel Macron, the leader of France. I mean, we're talking about huge levels of disparity here from so-called average people to leaders of, you know, major Western countries. And I think there's also a sense for a lot of people, and I guess I'm not just talking in the West, but in general, that I think people, and I think this is a problem, to some extent, accepted the fact that privacy is almost a luxury. I think we've got to push back so hard against that. We have the right to privacy. We have the right to our own information. We have the right to share 
private information with friends, family, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever it may be. We have that right. And yet so often in many countries that right has been lost because intelligence services often use using Israeli technology but also other technology too have now the power to essentially look at everything that we're communicating, everything we're sending back and forth on phones, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they're really due for a reckoning. And I'm obviously far from the first one who's saying that. I mean, Edward Snowden, the great NSA whistleblower who 10 years ago released those huge amounts of documents, that's in some ways what he was showing as well. He was obviously releasing a huge risk to himself as why he's now in exile in Moscow. That he can't go back to the US because he'll be charged and will face the rest of the life in prison. So he's forced to live in exile with his partner and kids in, in Russia. That the NSA, the world's most superior intelligence gathering service in the US, is hoovering up insane amounts of information on Americans, but also global citizens. And meaning the privacy is dead. And he was saying, and I agree with this. We have the right to fight back against that. We have the right to our privacy. We have the right. Yes, we want to be kept safe. And there's, there, is, there are risks out there from terrorists, from criminals, from pedophiles. I'm not denying any of that reality. But the, the problem is that the intelligence services in many states sell this Faustian bargain, which essentially says, if you want to be safe in London or New York or Sydney or God knows where else, you've got to give up some of your privacy. And I think a lot of citizens out of fear did do that for a while, but I think there is a, to some extent a pushback against that in the last five or so years, including against companies like Facebook and others, which breached that so badly. Mm. Yeah, the, the, there are, there's definitely a backlash happening against, against big tech, against like surveillance capitalism in general. But then, you know, Facebook has sort of, I don't know if it's as a result of, of some of the stories that have come out over the past decade or so, you know, about impacts on mental health, like ways it was exploited to, to try and influence elections. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, generally sped it, spreading ridiculous, unvetted propaganda in a lot of senses. Um, which hasn't changed, by the way. Yeah. Which has not changed. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. let's be clear about that. I mean, there is massive amounts of information and i put some of this in the book in the context of israel and some of the work that they've been doing uh, to try to influence various other countries but you know in the last few years when there's talk about uh, russian bots or, or you know but we're sort of bombarded in the western press of well we're being totally hacked by russian uh, cyber criminals some of which is obviously true we are but Trump was elected because of Russia or mm. this kind of nonsense arguments, which are completely bullshit, A, but B, they kind of ignore the fact that what do you think our countries are doing? I mean, are Russia, is Russia and China trying to influence countries? Absolutely. Do I like that? No, I don't like it. I don't support Russia or China. They're horrible, repressive regimes that repress their own people. I'm not a fan of either of those nations, leaders and governments. But what do you think Western tech companies are doing or allowing? As I have in the book, there's massive amounts of information that, for example, Facebook assisted in a genocide in Myanmar. Now, they weren't literally killing people you know, with guns or weapons, but they were allowing essentially hate information to be spread hugely in a country like Myanmar, which killed 
caused the genocide against the Muslim Rohingya people. There's huge evidence that they're still doing that in Ethiopia. There's lots of ethnic violence. In other words, and I tell you, talk about this in the book, that for companies like Facebook and others, non-Western people just don't matter. That's the bottom. They just don't care. Yes, they take some political heat from some of this controversy, but ultimately, and how it ties into my book is, that's how it comes for Palestinians. Palestinians are regularly, their posts on Facebook or Twitter or elsewhere are curtailed, are shadow banned, are censored, and they haven't got the political power really to try to fight back. They try, and there are many of us obviously that talk about it, but they haven't got the power that Israel does or the US does or Western interests do. And because the Palestinians have been too easily, sadly, by Western racism and hypocrisy framed as terrorists, their silencing is somehow seen as justified. And, and what's so fascinating in some ways with the Palestinian issue is that despite all that massive censorship in many Western countries, public opinion, in fact, is becoming far more sympathetic to Israel. So all that censorship ain't working all that well. I'm not minimizing the importance of it, and it's there, and we should talk, talk about it and investigate it like I do in the book, but public opinion is shifting. US, UK, Europe, Australia, Western states, not having much impact on the political leaders who are making the decisions yet, to be sure, who are still very pro-Israel for a range of reasons, but public opinion is shifting. So I would argue that's more in spite of mainstream media, not because of it. Mm. No, definitely, and there's uh, there's probably a like a an opposite effect happening in in the same sense. Like as people become like more and more skeptical of of like corporate media interests, they're mm. more and more likely to just sort of reject what the the like the accepted narrative is like in the mainstream press, sort of out of hand. The like regardless of like the factual like you know accuracies or inaccuracies of the story, it's it's like a it's like I think in a lot of ways the mainstream press have like they've they've sowed the seeds of their own demise by failing to be like a, a trustworthy source of information on on different issues they've caused people to then turn against whatever they're saying regardless of you know the actual validity of the stories mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah it's i think a that's true and i feel actually quite mixed about that i don't say that because i'm i'm crying about the lack of legitimacy of a lot of mainstream media. I've spent 20 years of my career often critiquing and damning mainstream media awfulness, lies. And I said that my seminal moment was the Iraq war in 2003, where I saw the vast bulk. I'm in my late 40s now. So I started my career, I guess, in my late 20s and professionally as a journalist. And that was a seminal moment for me where the vast bulk, there were some exceptions, there were some critics to be sure, but in general, the vast bulk of the mainstream media in most Western countries were 110% behind that catastrophic war. And that was pretty seminal for me because I saw that so many in the media were happy to be handmaidens to power. And frankly, 20 years on, so many of those figures have failed up. Yeah, They're still around. They're still now in the media. Some are politicians, some are commentators being asked to serious questions about foreign policy it's like why the fuck are you even allowed to be heard in public like what is going on and i know exactly why because it's a closed shop 
Cretans protect Cretans. There's no accountability in the media. There's no real transparency about how that happens. And I think moments like that have undeniably caused many in the general public in many countries, in the West particularly, to be deeply sceptical of power. I mean, the reason, so that's obviously in some ways a, a very clarifying moment about the Iraq war and how many people went along with it in the media and politicians, of course. But what concerns me, though, about that loss of legitimacy is nothing really has replaced it. Now, I'm not saying there needs to be one outlet or three outlets that that do that. I, I don't think we live in that world anymore. But what, what worries me is moving forward in the coming decades is we're increasingly going to have a real class divide about how people get information. And what I mean by that is those who can afford it will pay for so-called quality media. They'll pay for subscriptions. They can afford to get behind the paywall, whatever outlet we're talking about. Could be independent media, could be mainstream media, combination of the New York Times, for example, and maybe some other outlet, fine. But the vast bulk of people can't and won't pay for it. So what are they going to get served? The slop, mm. the free stuff. Now, I'm not saying being free is bad. I mean, I, I think a lot of media should be free. I'm not saying it should be, one I should, should have to pay for it. Although I do think there's, as an independent journalist who would like to eat, it's certainly important that people do pay for you know the work that I do. But I believe a lot, you know, a lot of information, public broadcasting particularly, should be free, you know, whether it's and I have a lot of problems with ABC, BBC and various other outlets, but it should be free. That, that, you know, that to me is, is a is a no-brainer for me. But the idea that people will essentially be served a lot of slop because they can't or won't pay, it's really worrying about where this media ecosystem is going. And when I look, for example, at what's happening in the US with the seemingly never-ending Trump phenomenon where you have a lot of Americans, tens and tens of millions, mm. who are, and this is not unique to America, by the way, it happens in other countries too. For example, you know, supporters of the former leader in Brazil, Bolsonaro, it's not unique yeah. to America. The reason it's relevant in America and to the world is because America is America and America impacts all of us, sadly, for better or for worse. Hmm. What happens in 2024 in the US election impacts every single person on the planet in some way. And I don't say that as a big supporter. I think Joe Biden has been a pretty horrible president. However, to me, it is undeniably true that someone like Trump for a second term is a deeply scary, dangerous prospect, I would argue. That's, mm. You might disagree or some viewers might disagree with that because he's a man who's hell-bent on it's grievance politics. It's hell-bent on revenge. And anyway, I find that very problematic. But I mention that because you have a lot of people in America who are living in their own media bubble. I mean, on the left and the right. It's not unique to the right, by the way. Mm. MSNBC on the left to some extent and those on the right. But it's dangerous when one doesn't get exposed to other critical views. And as I often say as a journalist, to other younger journalists especially, you should, or anyone really who's watching this, we should spend so much of our time reading and consuming media we fundamentally disagree with. It's so important. Mm. Not yeah. because I, I, mean, I watch a lot of Fox News. I don't agree with Fox News. I don't like Fox News. I have a profound problem with Fox News. <laughs> uh, as people will know, it's owned and run by Australians, sadly, or former Australians, Rupert Murdoch, who is sadly Australian. <laughs> former Australian. Um, <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting. Often I say to people that the two most famous media figures in, from Australia in the last half century are Rupert Murdoch and Julian Assange. And it's kind of fascinating how, I mean, I'm a big supporter of WikiLeaks and have been for many, many years, and what's happened to him is just an absolute travesty, but you could not get two more different people. Anyway, Murdoch and Julian Assange. Anyway, but I think there is something, yeah, to be said for this idea of spending time out of our comfort zones. It might sort of sound obvious to do that, but do not. we should not just be reading stuff or consuming stuff that confirms our own beliefs. And I watch Fox and other right-wing media, I guess to have my views challenged, to think about my own position, to probably, as a journalist, to improve how I argue my own point of view. And I'm interested in what other people are saying, not because I don't really feel my views have become more right-wing. It probably, if anything, pushed me more to the left, I suspect. But I think it's worth doing. Um, yeah, so no. it's a fascinating state of affairs, but it concerns me. Yeah, I mean, it concerns me to like the the part of it that that worries me is the fact that we the more that 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 people lose trust in uh like media sources that would have been like universally looked at or at least by people within a country and go, oh well, okay, look, they're they're they've got a bit like they might be a little spin, but like they're telling the facts, like you know they're reporting the facts accurately. You know they might they might their opinion on what what it means might differ, but if if we don't all have in some sense like a handful of either independent journalists or outlets that you can point at and go, okay, it doesn't matter what their slight their slant on the on the the story is. He's like, I trust them to have reported the facts accurately. And and we're losing that so rapidly, and to the point where like like you'd mentioned that the the echo chambers and we like our own informational bubbles, like the the Brexit referendum is the first time I really got confronted with this because I I looked at it and I was just like, I don't even understand how fifty two percent of the the country voted for this. Like I don't understand their arguments. I don't get what they mean. And 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 I was probably like one of the the Ramoners, like the, the liberal elite in, in a sense, in like in the attitude that I had towards it. And, and that is, is terrifying. Cause it means that you're in a lot of senses now that all of our countries seem to be, at least in, in the West, in the English speaking countries, like weirdly, just like almost like right down the middle partisan. Like there's some float in people, but it appears we get, there's this weird like wedge where half the people are thinking what on earth are these people thinking and the other half are go like it's like you know some people are like oh yeah trump's like the second coming he's gonna fix everything yeah. and i'm looking at them being like he, he stacked his cabinet with goldman sachs people like he did the exactly. same thing that hillary clinton was gonna do you know yeah and and then there's people like they're looking at joe biden being like oh my god he's the he's the most wonderful like uniting president yeah. we've ever had like you know trump's just a demagogue and you're going are you are you looking at the same biden the one that's like deteriorating mm. before our very eyes like the, you yeah. know and 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 the, the dangerous thing is that why can't we all exist like previously i feel like we might have somewhat somewhat existed in a world where everyone like recognized that both of these people were flawed characters and maybe had a preference but instead we exist in this informational world where you either think they're the the antichrist or the second coming yeah <laughs> And I think in some ways, a lot of that is utterly constructed. And 
if viewers, it's really worth reading a book called Hate Inc. by Matt Taibbi, who's mm. an American journalist who's written lots of interesting books. And, and this book came out a few years ago. People can find it easily online. Essentially saying how it's a construction, and he's talking mostly about America, but it's certainly equally relevant in other countries too. He's talking mostly about Fox News and MSNBC. So Fox News mostly for conservatives, MSNBC for kind of more Democrat leaning liberals, lefties, progressives, call them whatever you want. And but how essentially, I mean, he talks about two things in short. One, that there is a deliberate attempt to create those bubbles so viewers will not go anywhere else for their information because no one else is trustworthy. But secondly, the sense somehow that we've these these networks particularly are kind of looking to create it's not just it's not just bubbles it's it's sort of worse than that in a way that they're trying to um, in in the desperate race for ratings at a time where the so-called norms of the past are gone so you know back in the day it was there was like four or five american channels fine now these days you know then they went to cable and the fact is in america at least and elsewhere cable actually is dying it's dying as a medium it's still popular Fox is obviously big, CNN. They're not dying tomorrow, but they're dying. The trajectory of these networks is going down. And they may survive in 10, 20 years, who knows, but there's a complete balkanization of where all this media is going. So as many more, I would argue, smaller outlets, it's hard to see in years to come, although there's going to be consolidation, as there always is. You know, mm-hmm. the big fish eat the small fish. That's sort of how that glorious capitalist system works, right? So some of those networks may survive and some might not. But... What he argues in that book, I think, very persuasively is in the desperate look for ratings and eyeballs, if society gets fucked up in the process, so what? In other words, the thinking, I'm not saying every single journalist who works for MSNBC thinks like that, but over successive years, if management of these networks, both that one and Fox News, are deliberately creating divisions within society for what exactly not because i think by the way there should not be i mean in some weird way although you're right there's huge um disagreement amongst many issues in the weird way a lot of big issues that i write about is actually amazing agreement in congress mm. when it comes to say foreign wars iraq afghanistan syria libya there's barely any dissent Israel, Palestine, there's barely any dissent. There obviously are differences in the US on, say, healthcare and other issues, which are not insignificant by any means. But when it comes to foreign wars, there's basically complete bipartisan support for these insane wars. And that's similar in many other countries, by the way, Australia, UK and elsewhere. So, yeah, there is something disturbing, I think, about how many of the corporate media plays are deliberately openly and proudly causing more divisions in society in the very cynical reach for ratings at a time where their whole cable news ecosystem is kind of in a trajectory downward. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, going to be really interested to see how long Fox News does continue to dominate ratings in, in America, because obviously like the left is, is quite 
the like the left wing media environment there, you know, you got CNN, you got MSNBC, you got there's 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 you know there's a handful ABC. I would question how left they are, by the way. But well, yes, you more, okay. more more a bit more left than Fox. That's yeah. True. Okay, I wouldn't actually. Left, to be but... fair, I wouldn't describe any of them as left. They're 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 you know. <laughs> Corporate stenographers, sort of centrist, in a with a, yeah. they're, they're mostly Democrat, Democratic Party aligned. Yeah, um, which yeah, again, we will yeah. get into a big debate about why that's not left at all. But anyway, um, Indeed, the, yeah. the thing I'm curious about is like whether whether the Tucker Carlson exit from Fox News will make a big impact on their ratings. I'm I'm really curious. It has so far. Yeah, it has so far. But Indeed. Yeah, but this, I think that's. I think that's partially because it seemed to come out of no, not out of nowhere, but like it seemed to have been quite a snap decision, and therefore they won't, mm. have, they won't have like figured out what they're gonna do in its place. Yeah. So I'm curious as to like whether they like, and it might not be possible to 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 you know replace it because it's it's something that they're gonna have to come up with something where people are gonna have to then go back to tuning in to cable news. Um, so I'm, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, certainly, I th yeah. I mean, obviously, Fox and all American networks, of course, are glued to the, what's going to happen in 2024. And now, with Trump being the, well, the leading Republican candidate at this stage, you'd have to say, mm. barring something unforeseen. I know he's just been, he was just charged with pretty serious offenses. But putting that aside, because yeah. of course, who knows how that plays out. I'd say he's a likely Republican nominee. I mean, yeah, I mean, he may I think not that... be, and it's hard to see out how this plays out. But yeah, I think he might be. And if we're back to a Biden versus Trump again, I mean, he could not get a more depressing election if he tried. No, literally not. Although yeah. I'm skeptical, I'm skeptical that the I'm skeptical Biden runs really like i think they're gonna be like uh, they'll pull him out due to health reasons and they'll they'll parachute michelle obama in that's my prediction uh i, I that might be like a long shot but i think they, they got a better chance of beating trump in that sense and i think they'll panic because joe biden just the, the more he the more he's in front of the public the more people are like mm -hmm. like even the hardcore yeah. democrats are be like mm -hmm. So I guess, we're like, because, you know, he was successful in 2020 by not campaigning at all. He just sort of was just there quietly being not Donald Trump. <laughs> well, which, which I, I mean, I agree with most of that. But keep in mind the fact he could do exactly the same thing in 2024, not mm. be Donald Trump. Yeah. Yes, he's older. And don't get me wrong, and I agree with you, you said this before. Clearly, mentally and physically, he's in decline. I mean, it's pretty damn obvious. Um, clearly, it's obvious. But... It's interesting to know, and it would be on one level depressing, but also revealing if not being Donald Trump is enough to win 2024. If it's Trump versus Biden again, not being Trump could be enough to win Biden or all the Democrats, whoever they put up. I mean, Kamala Harris as a vice president is deeply unpopular. She's the most unpopular. And very unlikable ever. in my view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, which is weird because there was also Dick Cheney, who frankly was a war criminal. So, <laughs> I, I don't like Kamala Harris, but between her and Dick Cheney, I think I'd choose her uh, as bad as she is. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Americans are weird. Mm. Yeah, they really are. Bless them. Yeah. Anyway, um, I had more questions about, yeah, about the book, <laughs> about Israel and, and the, the Palestine laboratory. So... Um, how much of uh, how much of this tech do you think is being used openly against civilian populations? Like, do you think there's there's any sort of like 
barrier to that or like line where they're like you mean globally no i mean globally right like how how much are governments going oh well no we we can't use that on our own population that would be unethical like how much is that conversation happening because because like the the pegasus thing because like they they hacked like 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 a bunch of people that you said um i think uh bezos's phone had been hacked yeah um i I think um didn't you say well, to be clear Jamal with Jeff, with Jeff but yes, with obviously Jeff Bezos, who I haven't got much sympathy for Jeff Bezos for lots of obvious reasons, but he wasn't hacked by, just to be clear, he was hacked by the Saudis who had bought the spyware from Israel. Mm. So Sorry, essentially, yes. apparently, apparently Bezos was in communication with MBS, who's the repressive leader of Saudi Arabia, and apparently Saudi just decided to hack his phone, which is interesting. Anyway, but yeah. How much is it used on civilians? Hugely is the short answer. I mean, obviously, when there's a potential war in a country, I guess some of the weapons Israel sells could be used in the use of that war. But often A, wars do target civilians anyway. And B, just for example, this week, um, Israel released figures of its arms sales in 2022. I'm not sure why it's taken six months to release that, but anyway, it has. And the figure was the highest ever, 12.5 billion US dollars, 25% of which was in the Arab countries, which are all autocracies, many of which in the last years have become friends with Israel and Verticomas friends. And why? Because they're desperate for repressive technology. And who are they? I'm talking about Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, UAE, the list goes on. All US allies, to be clear, and Israeli allies now either officially or otherwise, because they want to repress their own people. What do you think they're doing with that technology? They're using it against dissidents and journalists and human rights workers, many of whom do end up in prison and tortured and dead. Like this is the reality where this technology is going. Doesn't I mean, the spyware itself, a spyware tool doesn't in itself kill someone. You know, it's not a, a gun. It's not a, you know, a missile. But... I feature in the book a lot of people I spoke to around the world whose phones were essentially spied on or hacked. I'm talking about a woman whose husband was murdered in Mexico and she discovered that both his phone and her phone had been hacked. Uh, Dissidents in Togo, the African country. And Mexico, by the way, is the country that has used Pegasus more than any other country in the world. Mexico is obsessed with spyware it's mad they're utterly and other countries are too but mexico for some reason is obsessed with spyware so if you ask me how often is this technology used on civilians all the damn time i mean that's kind of the point the point is and obviously a lot of what israel sells is not just spyware but when they are selling tools like that they're doing it because they know those regimes will be going after their own enemies like that's how this works so it's a really deeply damaging trade made worse by the fact that there's no regulation it's essentially the wild west very few nations want to regulate it because they all want to use it Mm. but um, i think that'll change i mean like with any weapon uh nuclear weapons chemical weapons uh these weapons over time have been regulated that system's not perfect countries abuse it breach it ignore it to be sure but there are regulations around weapons these days in general and there's no regulations around spyware. I think there will be. Right now, it feels like we're a long way away. It'll happen. 
Some countries will abide by it and some won't. But I think it's inevitable it will happen because unfortunately, spyware is not just can be used in the tools in the hands of a state, but also private actors. Like, is there any reason, for example, why a company couldn't use spyware against people they want to go after? Business rivals. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why they couldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be... <laughs> Yeah, and once once you get to the, the the amount of money that some of these like monstrous like international corporations are 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 able to throw around, and you wonder what the cost to them or the what the net benefit to them would be of using this technology. I mean, it's just like orders of magnitude bigger. So if there's no one regulating it, why would why wouldn't they do it? You know, for sure. <laughs> and and of course, one of the key revelations from Edward Snowden's documents about the NSA which got a lot less attention than it should have was, a key part of what the NSA was doing was gathering intelligence for American companies to be able to do better around the world to go out against their rivals. That's a key part of the Snowden revelations. So, yes, it was spying on Americans' phone calls and emails. All that's true. But it was basically also commercial spying. It's a key part of it. So American companies, Australian companies, British Canadian, New Zealand companies, all with the so-called Five Eyes intelligence sharing network, and essentially commercial espionage, intelligence gathering to try to beat their rivals in non-Five Eyes nations. That was a key part of the Snowden revelations. And Israel does that too, by the way, in their own. They're not part of the Five Eyes, but they are gathering huge amounts of intelligence, both on perceived enemies, but also on commercial rivals for companies operating within Israel. So these tools are incredibly destructive and ugly. And the people I spoke to in the book who had been spied on, many of them just felt totally violated, Mm. violated that all the information on their, you know, for many of us, our phones, sadly, in a way, are kind of a major part of our lives. We have, you know, photos and videos and maybe intimate other images or messages with, you know, other people. Um, Leaves you open, I guess, to blackmail in some places as well, for that matter. You know, married men having affairs or, you know, married woman having a, whatever it may be, right? I mean, you can imagine the multitude of issues. And that, that is what Israel does now against Palestinians in the occupied territories. They blackmail by surveilling all Palestinian communication, they discover, for example, that person X is having an affair with another woman or with a, a guy having an affair with another guy. And they go to that person, they say, we know what you're doing. Unless you work for us as an informant, we will release this information to your family or wife or whatever. And you can imagine a person is petrified of that possibility. Palestine's a relatively conservative society. And they often do end up being informants for Israel in a really destructive way. My book goes into some detail about this. So that kind of really ugly, grimy, so-called intelligence work is done by individuals who end up producing the companies like Pegasus. Like that's the genesis. That's the genesis, surveilling Palestinians, which then gets transferred to the possibility of a massive global market where you have really an indefinite number of people, right, that could be potentially buy your products and be surveilled. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's and I, something I wanted to mention as well because I've basically forgotten this was a thing. Like some of this, some of the ideas that you're talking about here is not like brand new either. Like if you go back like, ten years, um, Israel was um, blackmailing gay Palestinian to turn them into informants, which is and and that was ten years ago. And what on earth are they capable of doing now? In in terms of like if they could if they could gather that level of information then, like what on earth are they? being able to exploit noise yeah well in some ways i mean this is sort of what it goes down to right that and i talk about this in the book and it comes up over and over again is that israel gets away with it because they have complete global impunity mm. there's no real pressure to stop it unless they stop it i mean the occupation the violence the brutality the ugliness there's no real pressure yes you have now and then the u.s state department expressing real concern about the occupation or some European country putting out a press release. It's mostly all bullshit because ultimately, and this is what I talk about in the book, because Israel has essentially in the last decade sold some form of defence equipment to over 130 countries around the world, so the majority of nations on the planet, I sort of see it as a form of an insurance policy that not that a country that buys, say, spyware won't necessarily turn against Israel, maybe at some point they will, but I think what Israel believes, and to some extent with justification, is that they are selling all this equipment to nations that really want it. And they're therefore reliant on Israel and therefore a lot less likely to be critical of Israel in, say, international forums, the UN or elsewhere. I mean, that to me is how this works. So Israel is making a lot of transactional friendships to try to stay off any potential political headwinds that might come its way at some point if it, face it, it faces its so-called South African apartheid moment, namely when the world at some point became completely opposed to apartheid South Africa after decades and decades of essentially turning a blind eye or supporting it. By the early 90s, when Mandela was released from prison, much of the world, except I might add for Israel, that was a friend of South African apartheid right till the end, mm. right till the end. And that I think says so much about how they viewed each other. They, they viewed each other as ideological soulmates. And I have lots of this in the book that um, comments and quotes and documents that really show that they saw each other as fighting barbarism, one fighting blacks and one fighting Palestinians. You know, it was just very revealing. Yeah, definitely. Um it is it that's that's a really important point i think to make is the fact that like they never it was never a, a thing that bothered them you know it wasn't it was it, it just no and, and the opposite yeah yeah, yeah i know <laughs> literally um so uh i know you are pushed for time here so i've got one last question so how how do we resist this monstrous uh overreach of intelligence agency power well, it's a good question. I mean, there's a few ways. Obviously, there's also the American intelligence services or British or Australian. I mean, it's all the, obviously the book focuses on Israel, but there are others. I think a lot of it really starts with awareness. I think a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on, particularly the scale of it. That's part of it. I think there's a real space for boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel. This obviously is tools that we used against apartheid South Africa back in the day that everything from not buying Israeli products made in settlements to boycotting any state-backed Israeli companies or individuals or whatever it may be. 
and that is growing. Or musicians, for example, who won't play in Israel because there's or won't speak, for example, at um, Israeli universities because they are funded or um, by the state. I mean, you know, there are legitimate ways one can fight that. I think there's also a real need to put pressure on our politicians to regulate some of this stuff, regulate spyware. I mean, I would argue it should be all banned. That's my vision. I don't know if that's that realistic in the short term, but I think it should be. These are dangerous, dangerous tools. And I think also there is a, and I say this in the book, there really is a need to not just accept the narrative that we're told in the Western media that there are so-called enemy states and friendly states. The enemy states are Russia and China. Iran, and this is not to defend those states. I've been to all of them. I've reported from there, and they're all repressive states. It's not a defense of those countries or those leaders by any means. But if one wants to look at a nation that has supported, backed, armed, and trained more repressive regimes than any other on the planet apart from the US in the last half century, it's Israel. So if we're outraged, by what China's doing to its own population or Russia invading neighbouring nations like Ukraine, as I believe we should be, why are we not equally outraged by Israel? Why? Because they're deemed as a friend. And we don't really go after our friends. We go after our designated enemies. And how do we choose those enemies? How, how are those enemies chosen? I'm not saying one day a politician pulls out China from a hat. It's obviously more complicated than that. But I think the big so-called war on China at the moment, the new Cold War, it's not about, in my view, a fear of military action against Taiwan. I mean, that issue is there. It's economic dominance. It's the fear that Western hegemony is kind of in its twilight. I don't think China's going to necessarily become the global dominant power necessarily, but power has to be shared. It's clear where this world is going, for better or worse. And I say that in the context of Israel, that we can either choose to accept a narrative that our media and politicians tell us that there are certain enemies that we have to fear and go after and destroy, or we can look more critically at other nations that are equally supporting repression around the world. As I said, Israel is well up there. With and The book goes into huge detail about what kind of nations and regimes, including the most extreme anti-Semitic regimes in the last 50 years, that Israel has supported. So... I guess this is making people more aware and using that to for political power. Mm. Well, hopefully things don't get any worse. <laughs> I think that's the bare minimum we can hope for. Um, yes. So, so Anthony, um, thanks very much for, for your time. Uh, everybody go Pleasure. check out uh, Anthony's book, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports Technology of Occupation Around the World, and some of your other, you know, wonderful books and uh documentaries so yeah man uh, is there anything you want to plug before we finish anyone any, people get all my information just my website it's just my name.com so antonylowenstein.com or if you google me or it's all there buy lots of books christmas is coming etc <laughs> awesome well links are in the description for everything we've talked about so uh thanks very much thanks for having me cheers mate Hey everyone, thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.